0: The Divorced Girl Smiling Podcast with your host, Jackie Pilisoff. No one should have to go through a divorce feeling alone and isolated. The Divorced Girl Smiling Podcast is a production of Divorced Girl Smiling where every show is 30 minutes aimed to empower you, help you feel validated and understood, and connect you with some of the best divorce professionals in the industry. So, grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and start smiling as you join us right now for the Divorced Girl Smiling podcast. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at divorcedgirlsmiling.com. Before we get started, I want to take a minute to talk to you about two Divorced Girl Smiling trusted professionals who I think are both outstanding. The first one is divorce mediator, Michael Cohen. So Michael spent 38 years working as a financial consultant at a large retail and healthcare company. He's the father of three, and he went through an extremely litigious divorce several years ago, which inspired him to become a divorce mediator. So he has a certification from Northwestern University, and he is a divorce mediator who is helping families move forward from divorce in the healthiest possible way, thinking of kids first. So if you wanna learn more about Michael, you can find him at michaelsmediation.com. I also wanna talk about my newest Divorced Girl Smiling Trusted Professional. Her name is Lisa Lisser, and she's an attorney turned certified divorce coach and the founder of LZL Coaching. Lisa is wonderful. She has such positive energy, And instantly makes you feel inspired and hopeful. She makes you feel like you're not alone and will help you find your self-esteem, your spirituality, and your strength. I just adore Lisa and I'm so excited to have her as a Divorced Girl Smiling Trusted Professional. You can find Lisa at lzlcoaching.com. And you can find both Lisa and Michael in the Trusted Professional section of Divorced Girl Smiling. I just want to clarify this to tell everyone I know I sound a little bit different. I'm getting over a really bad bug. This is the first day I've had a voice in four days, and the show must go on. So here I am. And what I want to talk about today is something that happens during divorce that I've seen and that I experienced personally. I call it paranoia. You have this stress of not knowing what's going to happen, how a judge is going to rule, how you're going to be perceived in court. And that is very scary. It almost makes you feel like you're on trial because you're in this legal battle with your soon-to-be ex-spouse, and you're wondering, what can be used against me? So that's what I want to talk about today And I have one of my favorite guests here with me today, Anna Krolikowska, family law attorney of 17 years and the immediate past president of the Illinois State Bar Association. Hi, Anna. Hi, Jackie. Thank you for having me on your show again. Well, you're one of my faves, Anna. Always. I think we've known each other for 10 years, and I think the work that you do is really wonderful. So Anna wrote this article for Divorce Girl Smiling called What Can Be Used Against You in a Divorce? And Anna, the first question I want to ask you before we get to the 10 things that can be used against you is tell me if you agree with me that your clients you've seen going through a divorce get like almost paranoid and do they have a right to feel that way? They absolutely do. And some of them absolutely
1: have a right to feel that way, especially if they're going through a litigated divorce process. Because in that setting, anything and everything can be used against you, right? It's a war. So you are absolutely right to be paranoid in that process.
0: But also, don't you even think in a mediated or collaborative divorce process? All these professionals are looking at you, so you're really on display.
1: You are, but maybe not to the same extent. So, for example, it depends It depends what we're talking about, what sort of a document or a record, right? If you're going through a mediation process, maybe your social media posts are not going to be used against you to the same extent, right? But if you're going through a litigated process, they for sure can. Yes, I'm not saying to just completely disregard what you and I are going to talk about in terms of protecting yourself and making sure that you're making good choices. If you are choosing mediation or collaborative process, but the level of caution very much differs in a litigated process. Like I said, in a litigated process, you're assuming that any, or you should assume that anything and everything can be used against you, that any post on social media or text or communication can be used against you or treated as if it was going to be published on the first page of a newspaper.
0: That's a good point, Anna. Mediation is different. It's way worse in a litigated process but I think you still can have things used against you that can hurt you immediately. Of course, of course, absolutely. So let's get to the 10 things. The first one is communication records. So tell me about that.
1: So communication records can mean anything from emails, text messages, social media posts, and they can be used as evidence in a divorce proceeding because you are a party to a case, And there are certain exceptions in the area of of legal procedure that's called um, evidence and in regards to discovery that a judge can allow into evidence and consider in dealing with your case. So, for example, if you post uh, negative or hostile messages or if you send negative or hostile messages, A judge can take that into consideration in two respects. For example, if there are kids involved, a judge is viewing everything through the lens of what is in the best interest of the kids. And are the parents able to communicate in an amicable way to support each other as co-parents because they view that as benefiting the children? And if instead you are sending hostile and negative and harassing messages, that's going to be viewed
0: in a negative way and against you by this judge. Great points. And I also want to add something. I want to ask you about it. Sure. Would you advise people to never put anything in writing of what you would agree to? Because then it could come back and they would say, well, she said I could have the house. See, here's an email from December 7th saying that, she would gladly give me the house. Absolutely. You have these conversations.
1: And then when you have a final agreement, that's when it's put down in writing. So for example, in mediation, the mediator comes up with the memorandum of understanding. It's the summary of everything you've agreed to. If you're in collaborative process, your professionals take notes of what you're discussing and preliminarily agreeing to, but it's all covered under the settlement negotiations, right? It's protected in a certain way. And when you're done, the attorneys prepare the financial agreement, the marital settlement agreement, and the parenting agreement, the parenting allocation judgment. In a litigated case, if your lawyer is communicating with the other uh, spouse's attorney and there's any settlement discussion in writing, they will put on their emails or on their correspondence a disclaimer along the lines of confidential settlement communication, inadmissible at trial, or my client reserves the right to withdraw any of these settlement terms in the event we do not arrive at a settlement and have to go to trial. So those communications happen in ways that try to protect you as much as possible. But if you're unaware of that, or you're just communicating directly with your soon-to-be acts, you might be putting things in writing that become a concern potentially in the future.
0: And if you really feel like you want to give your spouse the house, it's okay to tell your mediator or Mm -hmm. just save it for mediation. Don't put it in writing. Right. Or
1: say something along the lines of, you know, I'll consider it, assuming we reach agreement on, you know, these three other issues that are also important.
0: Number two, financial documentation. How can that be used against you? Well,
1: the simplest way to explain this one is to say, let's say a spouse is hiding assets or is spending marital money on non-marital purposes. All that evidence, all that information can be brought in against them, presented at trial, and the judge can reach conclusions based on that evidence. So for example, let's say you have someone spending marital money on non-marital purposes. It can also sometimes be referred to as dissipation of marital money. And the judge could say, you know, the person who spent Is marital money on non-marital purposes has to pay that back to, to the marriage to be divided between the spouses or their share of the assets is reduced by what they spent
0: inappropriately. When you say outside of the marriage, are you talking about money spent on affairs, hotel rooms, or are there other things that I'm not thinking of?
1: So that's one common example. Another one could be gambling the money away. Unfortunately, addictions play a strong part in a lot of divorces. And and it's not just addiction to substances. It can also be a gambling addiction where marital money is being spent for something that is definitely a non-marital purpose.
0: Well, it could be anything from even, I would say you could go after somebody's intensive alcohol purchases or, you know, hookers, anything that they have an addiction right. to. Right. You're absolutely right. You're listening to the Divorced Girl Smiling Podcast. My name is Jackie Pillasoff, and I'm your host with a very hoarse voice today. I'm here today with Anna Krolikowska, Chicago and North Shore-based divorce attorney, Anna has been in practice for 17 years. I've known Anna for 10 years, if you can believe that, Anna. I can. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Absolutely. And I have been so impressed by watching Anna's practice grow. She's a great attorney and just a great person. Today, we're talking about what can be used against you in a divorce. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we have seven more. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a divorce attorney in Massachusetts? If so, I would highly recommend Katherine Becker Good. Katherine has been a divorce attorney for over 30 years, and she has been working in the courts of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts since then. She's an extremely trusting and just genuine, warm person. Also extremely experienced and dedicated to helping people going through a divorce. If you want to learn more about Catherine, you can find her at cbgoodlaw.com. I also want to talk about Elaine Moss and Pete Mullins, who are a team of financial advisors for Vester Capital. I've known Elaine and Pete for almost 10 years, and they are my financial advisor. And Pete is a CDFA, and they work together with a niche in helping women going through a divorce. I became a client of Vester several years ago, and I am so pleased with both the performance and the service standpoint of things. I really, really like Elaine and Pete and trust them so much with my money. If you want to learn more, you can find them at vestercapital.com and you can find both Katherine Becker-Good and Elaine and Pete in the Trusted Professional section of Divorced Girls Smiling. Welcome back to the Divorced Girl Smiling podcast. My name is Jackie Pilisoff and I'm your host. I'm here today talking about what can be used against you in a divorce, otherwise known as helping you with your paranoia. I went through it. And I'm here with a great attorney named Anna Krolikowska. Anna, welcome back. Thank you. Let's move on to number three. And number three is social media activity. Now, everybody listening is going to be like, we know, we know you shouldn't post anything on social media. So that's obvious. But what are some things you've seen people post on social media that ended up hurting them in the divorce and they didn't even realize it? Okay. The most common one is posting things
1: about their new significant other before their divorce is finalized. And it's not necessarily that only a judge will take that into account and it hurts them that way. Look, realistically, we're human beings, regardless of who is initiating the divorce process. Your soon-to-be ex-spouse seeing something publicly about you having moved on before the divorce has been finalized, maybe receiving messages from friends and family will react to it. So that can mean that your divorce process will now become more contentious, will take longer, and will cost you more money. That's the most common example. The other example of social media being used in a way that hurts you, what if you are traveling with the children or participating in activities that the other parent disagrees with? And you're posting about that on social media. It is part of evidence that can be introduced against you. And I could see and have seen the other parent claiming that you're uh, potentially endangering or harming the children by having them participate in such an activity.
0: All right. Now, Anna, both of those are great examples. But I want to bring up the one about posting with your new girlfriend or boyfriend. I know you're excited. I know you want all your friends to see that you're ending up happy, even though you got divorced. I know you are so infatuated and you think you might be in love and you've been unhappy for so long and now you're happy. But trust, Anna, hold back until the divorce is final. You don't want to upset your spouse because it can do nothing but hurt your case.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: Moving on to number four of what can be held against you in a divorce, witness testimonies. Yeah. So in a
1: divorce trial, because that's where this comes into play, you have different types of witnesses. You can have an expert witness like a psychologist testifying as to what's in the child's best interest and what sort of a parenting schedule should be in place. But you can also have friends, family members, acquaintances, teachers testifying as to things they saw or were a part of. And that can often have a significant impact on the judge's opinion as to a parent's character, parenting abilities, and the circumstances surrounding the divorce. And so... This is an important piece of any litigated case. And your attorney will be working with you to create this list of witnesses that you have to disclose prior to trial, prior to discovery closing. And initially, you disclose the list in writing, you identify these folks, you include their addresses, their phone numbers, and what they would potentially testify to. And the other side can decide that they will depose these individuals. Now, what does that position mean? It means that you are notified that you have to appear on a specific date at a specific time at a certain location. Now, sometimes since COVID, um, that deposition is done via Zoom, but it can still be done in person. And you as the witness are then asked questions to put on the record, meaning a court reporter is present and takes down what you're saying, your testimony, because the other side is trying to figure out what are you going to bring to the case? What information you have that you will be testifying to at trial? And sometimes you will have folks say, why are we doing these depositions? It's a waste of time and a waste of money. And frankly, if you're in a litigated process, that is just part of the entire experience and what goes into preparing for trial. And the reason you want the depositions is because you want that witness locked into a story, right? You want to know what they're going to say so that if at trial, they all of a sudden start testifying about something completely different then you as the attorney for the spouse who, let's say, is being accused of something, can question them on the stand and can present to the judge that all of a sudden your story is changing, that it was something else previously the deposition. And the judge can take that in into account when thinking about credibility.
0: This is probably the scariest thing that I can think of. And it only applies to people going to trial. If you're in mediation or a collaborative divorce, it's not going to come to this, but you better beware. If you're out at a bar with your girlfriends saying how much you wish your husband was dead, you know, Mm -hmm. you could be getting in trouble. This is all about character. Or if you could, if you say anything Like Anna said, you don't want on the front page paper. It could really hurt you. So this is a very important one. Okay, next one, alcohol or substance abuse. That can be a significant factor
1: in divorce cases, especially if there are kids involved. Because again, with kids, you are looking at everything via the lens of what is in the best interest of the children. And if you're concerned that you're soon to be asked Is under the influence when he or she is having time with the children or worse yet, that they drive under the influence of alcohol or substance abuse and you're concerned that they would be transporting the children, not just spending time with them under influence, but transporting the children, then that's a big concern. And there are a couple of different ways that you can address it. One, in terms of transportation. Either someone else needs to be transporting the children or in highly contested cases, you even sometimes have um, things like SoberLink used to track. And what SoberLink is, it's basically a device that's installed in, in the car and the person would have to blow into the device. And if the device does not detect alcohol, the car will start if the device detects alcohol then the car will not start and it keeps track that on such and such date this person was attempting to start the car and they were under the influence um sometimes you would have a situation where the parenting time itself is being supervised by someone else whether that's a family member or there are individuals Um, like therapists or social workers who will supervise time, obviously, they're paid for their time in doing that. And again, these are the examples that are often used or occur in litigated cases. There is an exception here that I want to point out, right? Um, I'm talking about someone who's actively in throes of addiction, and is abusing alcohol and these substances, right? You might have a situation where Your son to be ex is, for example, an alcoholic, but they have been in AA for three years. They're working their steps, they're working on their sobriety. And the situation is not as acute and dire as it would be if they were actively in the throes of addiction. So, in that situation, you might be looking at how do we create a parenting schedule that allows for parenting time while building in some safeguards. Because you as the parent and as the spouse who has been with someone who was previously actively abusing alcohol or, or various substances, you still have concerns about whether they can maintain the sobriety long-term and the impact on the kids. And that comes into your interaction with that person and the, and the parenting schedule for sure. So this is a delicate situation. And it's it's very important that you treat it as such, regardless of whether it's active addiction or someone who is working on maintaining their sobriety.
0: Well, the bottom line is everybody getting divorced wants to see their kids safe. Whether you're an alcoholic or just somebody who abuses alcohol or just thinks it's cool to have a couple beers and then go pick up your kids. There's really Mm -hmm. no difference when it comes to the kids. So Anna, I love that you brought up Soberlink. They are also a divorced girl, smiling, trusted professional. And I am absolutely gaga head over heels for Soberlink. This is a tool that can be implemented by a judge or the two parties getting divorced can agree that the person with the alcohol issue is going to start using Soberlink. I do want to tell my listeners that Anna was talking about an alcohol monitoring device that is used by people who get DUIs. There's a company and they install it in your car, but Soberlink is not installed in the car. Soberlink is a device that the person can use anywhere, but they have facial recognition and you have to check in like at certain times when they know you're you're getting your kids and they check your alcohol numbers. And so this thing is genius. It was not around when I got divorced and it is just something that keeps kids safe. And I absolutely love it. So if you want to learn more, go to soberlink.com. I had to give them a little plug because I think they're awesome. And I appreciate it. They are. And if you go to soberlink.com, go to soberlink.com slash DGS for Divorce Girl Smiling and you get $50 off.
1: That's fantastic, Jackie. I'm so glad you share that. Every little bit helps, especially when you're dealing with kids and going through a divorce process. That Mm -hmm. can be very expensive. So thanks
0: for sharing that. Number seven, domestic violence or restraining orders. Oh, absolutely. And this changes the whole
1: dynamic of a divorce case, right? If you are harmed... As the divorce process is unfolding or were harmed previously and filed for an order of protection, that comes into play in your divorce case because the restraining order can be rolled into the divorce case. So you don't have two separate cases pending in in front of two separate judges. You have one judge dealing with issues related to children and parenting time and whether there should be any restrictions. Um, which would be the same exact thing that a judge hearing an order of protection would be looking right. If the children were protected parties in the initial order of protection, because what the courts are tasked with determining is whether the abuse was limited to the spouse or did it involve the children or did it involve both the spouse and the children? And so These judges then have to figure out what level of restriction protection is warranted and needed. And in terms of how an order of protection process works, when you initially start that process, you go in on an emergency order of protection, you get that order for about three weeks, 21 day order. And then on that 21st day, you need to show up again if you're the person who's obtaining the order. And then there's a hearing and your ex or soon to be ex is made aware of that date and is able to present evidence if they show up. And that hearing is a bit more stringent than the initial emergency hearing. And at that point, the judge decides should I extend the emergency order of protection as is? Should I change it in any way? Um, Should I add things? Should I remove any restrictions? How do I adjust this order so that it one, protects the parties who need protecting? Two, doesn't overburden the respondent, that's something they have to take into account, they have to weigh the restrictions on the person who is alleged to have committed these abuses. And how do they keep this in place throughout the length of the case. And so every time your divorce case is then back in court, your order of protection, if it's extended should also be set for status on the same date, and should be getting extended, assuming that it's warranted. So so don't overlook that. Just because it's entered at the beginning of the case, if the goal is to continue having that order of protection, every time you're in court, you need to make sure that a new order continuing it is entered unless the judge enters a plenary order, meaning an order that's going to last a year or two.
0: Well, it sounds like this comes down to whether you have a good lawyer or not, because they should be on top of that big time.
1: True, but I don't want to assume that every case involving an order of protection will have a lawyer involved because sometimes they don't. Sometimes mm-hmm. folks are acting on their own or they will work with volunteers who are at the at the courthouses. They're sometimes called advocates, which it sounds similar to an attorney, but it's not. It can be someone without an attorney or legal background. So I want to make sure just as a public service announcement to serve that additional information out there. But yes, ideally, you're working with an attorney. Number eight, inconsistent behavior. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. And it's, it's significant because we don't know if the inconsistent behavior is a sign of an issue that's developed. Is it a sign of a new addiction, of a mental health issues, of an illness? why is there a new inconsistent behavior? What's going on? And so that's something that can definitely be used against you as well.
0: Right. And one thing you think of when you're thinking of any trial, even mediation, all the professionals want to see consistency because they know that that is how it's going to be in the future. Or I shouldn't say they know, but there's a better chance that that's the way it'll be in the future. If things start getting really inconsistent and things are all over the place that throws up red flags. Absolutely.
1: And if you have someone who's inconsistent, it prolongs the divorce process because you have one step forward, two steps back, right? Because you're constantly reworking or rediscussing things that you thought were handled already. Correct.
0: Last one, failure to
1: cooperate. That's a significant one. And it shows up in a couple of different ways. So for example, in mediation or collaborative divorce, in order to use that process, you need both spouses to cooperate. If they don't, it's not going to be successful. Um, In a litigated process, it's still important, but it shows up a little bit differently because if you don't cooperate in a litigated process, guess what? The judge can still make make decisions, still issue orders that are binding on you. But it means in many instances that you didn't really take the opportunity or take advantage to present your side or did not put your best foot forward. So you might feel like the court really didn't hear you and maybe they didn't but to what extent did you fail to participate in that process? The other piece of it is how you react to orders that were entered. So for example, if there is an order requiring you to divide property a certain way, or to pay support, and you don't do it, that doesn't mean that you just get to go on and, and not face any consequences, your ex, Can file a petition for rule and ask the court to hold you accountable to punish you for not following court orders. Similar with child custody and parenting time. And the big piece here is if someone is denying um, access to the kids or if someone is in some way harming the kids, again, if it's brought to a judge's attention, they are going to act. They are going to either force compliance with a court order or they are going to modify and issue new orders. So yes, it's your choice how you're going to approach your divorce process and post-divorce life. But do recognize that once you're in that court system, it's not as if you can avoid things forever. A judge can make decisions that will be binding on you and force compliance.
0: Anna, such wonderful advice. I mean, you are so right on so many of these issues. And I wanted to just say thank you for taking time to be with me today because you get it. You get the paranoia and you know the laws and uh, we really, really appreciate the advice and tips. Oh, you are very welcome. It is
1: my pleasure. And I'm a firm believer in education and making good choices. So, I always take the opportunity, any opportunity to help educate folks about divorce and the impact it can have.
0: Well, it definitely shows. And I want to end and tell my listeners one more thing. I talked a lot about being on your best behavior and you're being watched. And I know as a parent, that was hard for me because I felt like, well, I am a good parent. I shouldn't have to prove it to everybody. So what I want to say to my listeners is if you're going through a divorce It's only temporary. Just don't take it personally. Everybody going through a divorce as a parent is being watched. We know you're a good parent, don't you think, Anna? Yeah, absolutely. Treat it as a process you're going through and
1: and also as a process that creates a new normal because your life is changing, your family's life is changing. And whether you're using mediation or collaborative divorce or litigator process, it will look different. So, view it via the lens of, okay, how do we create a better future for all of us?
0: I just love it. If you are listening to this and you appreciated and really liked what you heard from Anna and you want to have a consult with her, she can be reached at annaklaw.com or in the trusted professional section of Divorced Girl Smiling. And if you want to listen to more podcasts, read articles, download my mobile app, sign up for my free consult, or of course, find Anna and so many other wonderful, trusted, vetted divorce professionals, come see me at divorcedgirlsmiling.com. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. And we'll talk to you real soon.